Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alarmy, before we dive in, a few quick announcements. We're doing another live show. The last one was so much fun. You can watch us discuss live from the comfort of your own home and give us your opinions through a live chat. We're doing a special Halloween show, so mark your calendars. It's going to be Friday, October 23rd, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tickets are pay what you want. We will be discussing who's to blame for the notorious serial killer, Ed Gein. Also, we have merch, and it's really, really cool. T-shirts embroidered with an alarmy patch, tote bags, a very chic official alarmy hat, and an alarmy tin camping mug. Super cute. Go to erios.net slash shop. Now, on to today's episode. An Erios original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy, and each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we'll be speaking with guest expert Ravi Rajan. He's a professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's also written multiple articles on the Bhopal gas tragedy. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Ravi. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So can you start off by giving a, uh, us, our listeners, some background on your field of study? Well, I worked on um, in the combination of environmental human rights on the one hand and on disasters studies on the other. So it's risk and disasters uh, as pertains to the environment. So can you help us understand India's 
Green Revolution? What was its goal and what is its connection to the Union Carbide Company setting up shop in Bhopal? Yeah, good question. Um, the Green Revolution came about in a desperate bid by the central government to increase food productivity of grains mainly, but of other agricultural commodities as well. Uh, India had a, was a net importer of a number of critical agricultural goods uh, right up to the mid-60s. Uh, in fact, there was a caricature of the country as uh, going to the world at a begging bowl uh, for food. So the idea was that... Uh, uh, you know, they were looking for any kind of inputs, any kinds of methods of increasing agricultural throughput, productivity, and thereby making the country self-sufficient. Right about then was a time that the Green Revolution technologies were just being invented and being fairly significantly promoted by large big foundations like the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, which had very large establishments several hundred experts based in India. Lots of U.S. land-grant colleges uh, were also involved. Um, agricultural extension agents were trained, brought from India to be trained uh, in these land-grant facilities and sent back. So an entire support structure to um, augment and promote this Green Revolution system uh, was created at that point in time. The positive end of the story, of course, is that India did become not so self-sufficient, but a net exporter of food crops. So in that regard, it was tremendously useful. The negatives, of course, are very well known that the Green Revolution brought in very toxic and hazardous technologies, uh, created tremendous amounts of groundwater and uh, soil pollution, uh, dealing with chemical pesticides in particular. And it also brought in its wake companies like Union Carbide, that manufactured um, pesticides in India and in the end, in the case of this particular accident, resulted in several thousand people dying and almost a million people suffering uh, in its wake. So what is MIC? What is it used for and how toxic is it? Well, methyl isocyanate is the base chemical that was part of the process that involved manufacturing these pesticides that were being manufactured by the Union Carbide plant in Bhopal. Um, it's obviously a very toxic substance. Uh, we saw it graphically in the number of people who got killed instantly. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very widely known uh, toxic, extremely toxic uh, chemical agent. Uh, it was never meant to be deployed in the manner in which it was. So there were some critical design decisions made by Union Carbide Corporation, which resulted in this uh, uh, chemical being released on December 4th night. What were Union Carbide's design choices and safety protocols in terms of handling uh, the gas in the Bhopal plant? Well, we must step back a bit because um, it's important to know that, uh, for your listeners to know that this wasn't just what happened in Bhopal. Um, there was a sister facility uh, in West Virginia called, in, a, in a city called Institute, Institute of Virginia, where the, uh, the plant had a long history of you know, severe problems in the community as well. 
So this is a company that's had a, a fairly long history of problems in the United States. Uh, it had drawn historically some of the, the greatest fines by the EPA. And in fact, uh, its, it's uh, infamy predates the establishment of the EPA. Uh, some of the worst environmental disasters claiming lives uh, were under the auspices of mines and other entities that are owned by uh, Union Carbide. So there is a kind of a corporate history or corporate profile that preceded Bhopal. Now, the critical thing that happened in Bhopal is that they made a decision to store MIC in underwater tanks. Uh, whereas the original decision, the one that's there in the sister plant in Virginia, called for MIT to be manufactured and used up immediately. So in other words, by using it as soon as it was manufactured, there wasn't any of the toxic stuff left in tanks. It quickly got it converted into pesticides. And therefore, that extreme, it could never really create this kind of uh, problem in terms of mass casualties and mass death. In Bhopal, they decided that they wanted to, in a sense, basically cut corners. They they didn't want to go through the processes and facilities needed to create an in-situ production. It was much cheaper to just produce a certain amount of MIC, store it, and then use those stores to create the pesticides as and when required. So it was that kind of um, um, decision that backfired. They made other decisions as well. So the conditions of work were not very good. A number of employees left. On the night of the accident, there were very, I think, three or four operators looking at hundreds of dials, thereby not really fully in a position to react uh, or even recognize events before they went out of control. Um, so lack of training, very low employee morale because of these kinds of decisions that have made cost-cutting decisions that have been made, um, as well as the underwater underground storage, meant that they neither had a way of preventing this runaway accident, nor the people and the personnel to actually deal with it. And the other problem, of course, was in some respects, they the company had done what a lot of companies do in these company towns, which is that they had the system, the government, the key people, pretty much, you know, um, either under their payroll or in a system of favoritism, which meant that there was a degree of laxity in regulating the plant, which could otherwise also have mitigated some of the worst impacts. So between cost-cutting and decisions that are, you know, simply put profit over safety, uh, between very poor safety cultures and protocols to begin with, uh, a low employee morale, and a very poor regulatory environment, uh, you had a recipe for disaster that took place. Can you walk us through what happened that night? Well, um, what happened was that people woke up uh, around the middle of the night, early hours of the morning of December 3rd, 4th, 1984, uh, with a feeling of what they described as um, you know, burning sensations. They Some people refer to it as San There's literally the sensation of burning chili pepper in their, in their throats. And very soon they were coughing, they were unable to breathe. It became very difficult. Uh, there was really no real proper warning system. Uh, no rehearsals had ever taken place. Nothing had prepared people for what could happen. Now, with the result that they uh, basically ran up and started running uh, from their uh, homes. In that process, they ended up inhaling more. And we don't really know how many. That's still a 
highly uh, contested figure. But one could say safely that between two and 6,000 bodies were found based on the number of shrouds that have been requisitioned the following days, etc. Um, animals were di- also died, so tens of thousands of, you know, you know, regular animals, cats, dogs, stray, you know, goats, cows, and the whole thing was like a war zone of dead bodies the following morning. Um, and of course, subsequently, what happened was that amongst those who survived, uh, they obviously came in with extremely poor capacities to work and make a living. So they lived pretty much a life of fair degree of economic destitution through the rest of their lives. It continues today. And some of them had progeny or their children or smaller people had progeny. And they too have suffered from all manner of illnesses and cancers and so on. So in that regard, the, the horror is still continuing for many of these people into the tens of thousands. Some people, some estimates put the numbers at close to a million people who are still suffering. Um, I was wondering if you could actually uh, specify for those thousands who, who did survive but suffered long-term effects from the exposure, how were they later affected? All manner of things. I mean, so it depends on where you are I mean, in the spectrum of things. Um, but obviously there's a degree of significant degree of cognitive impairment there's a wide range of cancers that have taken place. Uh, women have particularly faced the brunt of it in terms of a wide range of uh, reproductive illnesses and so on. There have been genetic mutations and progeny. So, yeah, it, it covers the entire gamut. It, it, it's, it's the worst kind of dystopia that one could imagine that actually happened. And it's continuing to, unfortunately, unfold. Going back a little bit, um, I, I'm from Miami, and I grew up having uh, being taught about hurricane preparedness. And our producer Amanda, she's from California. She grew up with you know earthquake drills in school. But in the case of Bhopal, it, it doesn't seem like the local residents were told what to do in case of a gas leak. In fact, I don't think they even knew that there was that kind of threat. Why is that? And could could have saved lives? Absolutely, they, they you're absolutely right. They had no clue. Um, and that is because the company uh, kept saying that there's nothing dangerous here. Um, there were advertisements that I've, uh, uh, you know, fished out during my research and even published, uh, which talk about the misharbingness of growth and economic prosperity and well-being for all. Um, they completely played down the toxic potential of some of their facilities or how dangerous they were. Um, maybe that's because they perceived that um, it would draw adverse attention, um, you know, whatever the reasons are, uh, far from uh, rehearsals and preparedness, they actually actively promoted the idea that they're nothing but sources of employment and growth. So there's nothing at all anywhere. Uh, Far from it, I mean, uh, right down to the, the, the event itself, where there wasn't even a clear communication about what to do. So it's one thing to say, well, I mean, you know, prepare people to evacuate or, you know, put a cold uh, uh, water compress on their faces or something and stay put. It's another to not even be told what to do. Uh, there, was no, there was no broadcast. There was no loudspeaker. They told them what to do. Absolutely nothing. Um, I mean, I read that the hospitals didn't know, the doctors didn't even know what was happening uh, when people started showing up. Nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew what was happening, and uh, there were controversies galore about what actually happened. And in fact, after the disaster, Union Carbide, uh, 
you know, put out a significant amount of resources and disclaiming that there's anything toxic involved. Um, they said that there's, there's, no, there's no possibility that this could be cyanide or anything at all related to it. They claim that uh, this couldn't happen in a modern plant like this. Subsequently, they said, well, you know, it's really not our processes. It's a disgruntled employee and sabotage. Um, and that, again, was a crazy theory because they never really brought up that sabotage theory in a courtroom. Um, so obviously, it was just, you know, for the consumption of the media. So it is a, it is a whole scale denial of what actually did, what they did and denial of responsibility. So after discovering the leak in the MIC tank, I read that there was a maintenance personnel, some maintenance personnel who took a tea break. Is uh, Did this happen? How is this possible? No, they were actually flushing. This is, you know, remember I told you that they were, they had stored MIC in underwater tanks, underground tanks, I beg your pardon. And so what was going on was that they were actually flushing the pipes with water. And unbeknownst to the operators, one of the valves that was meant to keep the water from getting into the MIC tanks had actually not, was not working, it had malfunctioned. So this water, which is being done, which is being used during a, a routine maintenance operation, trickled down into the tank. And that's what caused the explosion. That's what caused the reaction. Then this gas kind of came out and went through the, um, through the valve and into the upper atmosphere. Uh, so it wasn't so much that anybody was having a break. They just weren't enough people to monitor anything. So they were maintaining the plant. Um, most of the a critical amount of employees had uh, voluntarily left the plant because the conditions of work and were, were not very good. Uh, some employees were re- reassigned to monitor these complicated machinery and they wanted training and they weren't given it. So some of them left uh, with the result that you had a few people looking at the whole thing. So they were, nobody knew what was going on or what needed to be done. Is there a correlation between the economic class living nearby and the company's lack of safety protocols? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, the point is that there's been a lot made about the classic EJ interpretation, environmental justice interpretation of Opal. Um, the reality is that the shanty towns are populated mainly by their own workers who had moved in because of the plant and the economic activity that the plant generated. So these weren't, it was not the case of a plant being located in a shanty town area. It was a case of a shantytown that grew around in a kind of a very kind of colloquial, unplanned way around the plant. Um, but that necessarily wasn't the problem alone. There was a degree of environmental luck, if you will. Uh, I don't know if such a term exists, but it, to some extent it was involved in that it was winter. And there was what's called the inversion effect, wherein the, um, the inner atmosphere was pretty much low down. So the gas couldn't escape. So the reason why the gas pretty much sat there and killed all these people in the poorest areas were because, because the gas couldn't escape. So had this thing happened, for example, a few months earlier, in the middle of the summer, the gas would have escaped. And in fact, there may be there been lesser deaths around the plant, but nor in a much wider a diffused area around the plant, maybe with different effects. Maybe people wouldn't have died in these large numbers. We don't really know. But that's the problem. It, it is the fact that things simply sat there 
because of the winter. Ah, oh. it feels like a perfect storm. After the accident, who served timed for this? And were there people who got away unscathed that you feel should have shouldered some of the blame? Well, nobody did. I mean, there was an attempt, uh, you know, it is a very clever, and I've documented this in my, in my own writing when I researched this. Uh, to begin with, uh, you know, it, the public relations thing kicked in big time as well as lobbying work. Uh, the U.S. government uh, lobbied heavily. Um, with the Indian government to not assign blame. Uh, a U.S. court ruled that India was the place to try it. And some people cynically, and I don't know how much of this is true, some cynics argued that the reason the U.S. court did it, uh, made such a ruling, was that they felt that the Indian courts were not equipped uh, because of the absence of such cases to deal with it. Whereas had it been tried in a U.S. court, it would have resulted in at least a big large civil state settlement, uh, which didn't transpire. Uh, remember that the company made a profit on the year in which it settled the lawsuit out of court. So, in fact, the largest profit ever in its 70-plus year history. Um, so the company actually bounced back tremendously, and it's a, it's a kind of an example of how, how well a company, any corporation in a similar plight can recover post a disaster like this. So it is an example of great disaster management on behalf of the corporations. Um, now, as far as liability is concerned, um, the, there was a court case uh, that took place a year later in which the Supreme Court of India took up to create some kind of a precedence in which they argued, they actually ruled, that the top management of a corporation should be held criminally liable for compensation. So they created the doctrine of criminal liability. But that besides... Uh, when the American, when the CEO of the U.S. company came to India, he was very quickly whisked away on grounds and fears that he might be arrested in India and subsequently lived the rest of his life in relative luxury um, in somewhere in upstate New York, if I remember correctly. Um, so he escaped. Uh, then the other end of the drama was the parent company, the Union Carbide Corporation, claimed that they're not liable at all because the company that is incorporated in India, Union Carbide, India Limited, UCIL, was the one that is actually operationally responsible for the plant. So they passed the buck to the Indian subsidiary, even though some of the design decisions were made here in Virginia. So there's a tremendous amount of very interesting and clever lawyering that involved got involved, which meant that basically no one you know, faced any time or there wasn't even a significant compensation payment. This company, what was the the Indian uh, side of the of the company that was involved? Uh, how involved were they, and 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 were they mismanaging? Well, it is a subsidiary. It is called Union Carbide India Limited, so it still was Union Carbide. It is just that when a company goes to another country, another country, it incorporates there as a separate entity. Um, Union Carbide still had, a, I think. A, majority ownership, or maybe a small, small minority. I need to go back and look at my numbers. But at least a significant uh, percentage of the ownership um, was you know, held by the parent company, Union Carbide Corporation. And uh, on top of that, of course, uh, they did, you know, it is their technology, it is their kind of overall oversight and management, um, you know, which didn't really matter very much when it came to regular profits and so on, it did come to roost when the accident occurred. 
Because at that point, they could simply say, look, you know, we're not responsible to those guys. Uh, what do you think? Have we as a society learned from this, you know, terrible tragedy? Or is this kind of disaster still a threat? No, the simple answer is absolutely not. Uh, it is going to happen again. Um, you know, unlike, unlike um, you know, I often tell my students, and you know, especially that there's an analogy here with, uh, you know, with civil aviation and maybe the regulation of pharmaceuticals where we do make an attempt to trying to learn, although, you know, with the, with the latest Boeing fiascos, I don't even know that much about, you know, I can't say with certainty about uh, civil aviation either now. Uh, but certainly uh, the global regulatory environment, if anything, has worsened and weakened uh, in the last 30 years. Uh, and it's not just at least, you know, during the time of Bhopal, one could say with a reasonable confidence that in a country like the U.S., this wouldn't happen. It only have, would happen in a relatively uh, emerging economy with laxer, with a laxer regulatory environment. I'm not even sure we can say that now because we've had such an erosion of regulation, um, both in terms of, uh, um, of, the, of the legal system as well as the capacity to enforce and the money to enforce it then I think, if anything, we've actually regressed into the past. And I don't think necessarily that this scale of disaster is restricted to an emerging developing country. It could happen anywhere, I would imagine. And the worst fears are, of course, in the, in the nuclear domain, which I really live in fear of every day. Literally am, because, you know, my own hometown in India has two nuclear power plants, uh, not far from where we live, not far from where we have an apartment. So... It's uh, it's not a very happy prospect, if I want to say. Wow, I, I think I'm I'm properly terrified. Yeah, I, I think I think you're not you're not it's not unjustified at all. I think we all should be living terror. This is a very scary moment in history. It really is. So, at the end of the day, if you had to blame one person or thing for the Bhopal gas tragedy, who or what would it be? It never is one thing. I mean, if there's one thing we've <laughs> learned, if there's one thing we've learned. In studying disasters, um, you know, in studying disasters in all these years, it is that a catastrophe in itself, contiguous to the large population, doesn't make for a disaster. Uh, it's patterns of vulnerability. And these patterns of vulnerability include, for example, lax regulation, poor investments, poor technologies, poor de- design decisions, poor communication, um, a political economic environment, an ideological environment that brushes away safety or uh, denies climate change or does things like that. So it's a whole host of things. It's the way in which uh, incentives flow within corporations to promote safety. Uh, you know, it's, I do apologize. <laughs> I do. Yeah, so I'll go back. A second there, um, you know, it's it's a host of things, including, of course, uh, you know, how incentives flow um, within the way in which a corporation is uh, is uh, is organized. Huh? That's interesting. How incentives flow? I mean, I I I I take your point, Ravi. Thank you so much for joining us today and helping us really understand. Uh, this terrible tragedy um, that a a lot of us didn't even know much about. Thank you very much for having me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. How's it going? I'm pretty scared. I'm having a pretty scary moment. Yeah. How about... I mean, he really... Uh, that was that was a that was a lot, but in a good way. It's it's stuff we should be talking about. Totally, but I mean, uh, how are we? How are we going to sleep at night? Um, I mean, <laughs> necessary, <laughs> totally. But I I, I just uh, I, I loved you know hearing. Uh, well, I didn't love it, but I, I I thought it was so interesting what he had to say and and, and properly um, terrifying. Yeah, I mean, when you asked him if we've learned from this, he just gave the most confident no. That's right. The most confident no we've heard on this podcast ever. It might have been. And so it really was chilling. Um, But I definitely, he brought up a couple of points that I wrote down that I thought we could have put on the board. But all in all, I think we are in the right area. Yeah, I would love to hear what you wrote down. Um, The... What my my major one that uh, I I'm now going to think about for a while is how incentives flow, and that you know to me said a lot about I guess capitalism and the way these uh, companies work, and thinking about um, these companies and what they're doing in these other uh, countries that are are still developing and how they take advantage of them. And it's just like, uh, it feels like a vicious cycle, which uh, that he was uh, referring to. Well, yeah. And I think what, when he was talking about um, the lack of global environmental regulation, it, that was really interesting, because then you're leaving it up to these individual companies to sort of decide 
uh, what safety measures are appropriate. And when they're just worried about the bottom line, they're not really looking out for the safety of the communities. Yeah, we, we I mean, are, are you suggesting that we should have put that on the board? Because I would agree with you. Well, yeah, I think that could have gone on the board. So this is sort of what I what I wrote down. Um, starting from the top of the conversation, there was critical design design decisions. Mm. Um, and his point that even the facility in Virginia also had severe problems, and that Union Carbide had a bad history of this sort of thing. Yeah, it's it, uh, you're right. We we should have put like a uh, bad track record. Yeah. Um, oh, he also mentioned low employee morale and a system of favoritism and cost cutting. Yes, that that was fascinating. I, I think that we were trying to touch on that with brain drain, but this is different. The 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 com- uh, company culture seemed to mm-hmm. have been lacking. Whether and, and that was actually, now that I think of it, uh, uh, an issue with the Chernobyl incident where, you know, people didn't want to admit fault. Um, I think in this in this uh, particular tragedy, it was more that people didn't really trust management. Right. And each other. And from what Ravi was talking about, it looks like a lot of, you know, there was good reason not to because some of the employees weren't even qualified to be doing that job. Yeah, and it was interesting that he said they wanted to learn, but they weren't giving the opportunity to learn, and so that's why a lot of them left. Yeah. So do you think we... I think that we we ended up sending Union Carbide Company, but we also sent the the other companies because we felt like they just kept passing the buck. But do you think that we should that the the uh, blame really should have been put on the Union Carbide Company itself? Because that's what I'm well, thinking. We, en- we ended up sending UCC and their in the India Limited portion of the company to jail. Right. And then we gave CEO Warren Anderson the big slap. So, I mean, we kind of, you know, we cast a wide net. Which is the same reaction he had when I asked him. Yes, that's true. And, you know, he used a phrase that I love that I think we should sort of integrate into our alarmist vocabulary. And that was patterns of vulnerabilities. Oh, wow. Right? Yes, because that really encompasses this thing that we keep trying to put our finger on, which is like taking advantage of of, of people, taking advantage of, of situations, these these uh, corporations bigger, you know, that 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 also that it really encompasses a lot of capitalism. But it's good. It's, yeah. it's specific. I mean, I think. I, yeah, so I liked that phrase a lot, um, but there's something bigger going on here from sort of his environmental perspective and regulations and the how he was talking about how we're regressing as far as these environmental regulations and what what who can we blame for that? Because I feel like that is really important and that definitely has to do with why this happened. 
it feels like a lack of global leadership mm. and a lack of interest in uh, these sa- environmental safety measures. Yeah, and sort of a disregard for human life and science. This is just terrible. <laughs> I know, I know. But you know what? And I think, you know, we kind of rely on our big nations like the United States and China to sort of drive these environmental regulations. And when we're not doing that, um, it sort of starts to affect everywhere else in the world that we, you know, that are like stomping all around and ruining everything for everyone, which I do think, at least for the U.S., it comes back to capitalism. Right. So do you do we want to give the big slap to lack of uh, environmental um, global safety? I, I'm down for that because we already sent the CEO to jail because he's part of, you know, the company. So I'm down with giving the big slap t- slap to lack of environmental regulations for sure. Okay. I, I feel good about that. I think I'm going to call it. Um, okay. Lack of in- environmental global safety measures. You're getting the big slap. I mean, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot, a lot of people are going to have uh, a red, they're, they're going to see like a red mark on their face suddenly appear around the world yeah. right now. That is, that is true. And I think we don't really even need to offer the CEO Warren Anderson an ice pack because <laughs> he also did deserve the slap. Let's be honest. <laughs> I don't feel bad about that first slap. You're right. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I mean, they here. Uh, here we go once again, once again. But again, we're starting to see you know history repeating itself. We've covered now um, several environmental disasters, and there are so many commonalities. Uh, and as our guest expert said, you know, he's just waiting for this to happen again. So. Uh, thank you, Ravi, for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> Alarmy, don't let this happen. We need to be talk. You need to be talking to everyone you know about this disaster. We need regulation. <laughs> yes, <seriously. laughs> okay, so that actually, Rebecca, you're so good at segues because that leads us into asking the Alarmy to rate and review because that's how we spread the word about this podcast. <laughs> Yes, it's it's your job. It's your burden, but it's your uh, delight, right? <laughs> yes, it is your burden and your delight. So we've gotten a few reviews. We have to give a shout out to the people who are actually, you know, taking the time to do this. So this is a good one. Um, it's a, such a fun podcast, five stars. Just found this podcast a few weeks ago, and I'm already caught up. I love that they cover the more serious disasters, but also give a break with more lighthearted topics. If I could give this any more stars, I would. Ooh. I mean, if those stars could count, I would take them. I know. You know, what you could do is ha- uh, ask a loved one to also rate and review. So, Or just take their phone and do it for them. <laughs> Amanda, Nothing wrong with that. tell them what to say. The, you know, it could be, you know, verbatim. Yeah, just write like, I am typing this on a phone I stole, <laughs> but this podcast is great. 
so it's worth it. <laughs> That's right. And we won't blame you. We, we, we couldn't possibly blame you for stealing the phone. You know, no, you won't be sent to jail for that, no. for that crime. No. Um, and then another thing that I'm excited about, and I think the alarm you will be into is we have a series of fun Halloween themed episodes coming up. Yeah, we've got a lot of scary, very scary um, episodes brewing in a witch's cauldron. Yeah. Yeah. So from uh, starting next week for the next three weeks, we have fun Halloween episodes. And um, of course, we also have our live show that's coming up. So check the show notes for information on that. Yeah, I don't think we've actually announced the live show yet. So um, well, we hopefully have by this by the time this comes out. Oh, <laughs> so you, yeah, I'm assuming you guys will already know what we're talking about. <laughs> yes. Um, should we tell um, them what we're going to do? Yeah, let's Just talk about it. To get the uh, get everyone excited. So we are going to be covering Jaws, the movie Jaws. We're also going to be doing uh, an episode on Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, so this is the, the actual Dracula. And I the other night I watched um, the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. I don't know. Have you seen that, Rebecca? Not not that one. Is is that the one with uh, a a little uh, Kirsten Dunst? No, that's Interview with the Vampire. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're both really fun movies. You should watch them both. But the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula is with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, and it is it's really you got to watch wow. it. Wow, kind of iconic. It, I mean, and they do touch a little bit on Vlad the Impaler, so. That's exciting. Okay, so that's a good, that's a good uh, thing for our listeners to do to to get excited about the episode, um, because, it, it, I mean, you guys are not going to believe this uh, this crazy. He's a real person in history, and uh, the stuff on him is is just wild. That's right. And then we have our live show coming up, which we're going to do. We've never done a serial killer, so we're. Uh, giving it, putting our best foot forward by doing Ed Gein. I'm so scared to start researching this one. I know. I mean, this guy inspired uh, three of of the scariest um, classic movies. Um, There's uh, Silence of the Lambs that he inspired, Psycho. And what is the third one, Amanda? It's um, oh, was it like the uh, Chainsaw Massacre? That's right. Or Chainsaw Massacre? Is that what it was? That's right. So yeah, so we're we're gonna get into that, and there'll be some visuals. So mark your calendars, October twenty third at five p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's gonna be a uh, uh, fun. You know, we can't go trick or treating this year, so we might as well do this. That's right. Together. It's get you in the Halloween mood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, another episode in the books, Amanda. We did it. We, we really did. <laughs> one by one. We'll, we'll, soon we'll, we'll reach our one million episode goal. I think we're almost there. Yes. Um, I, I think I did the math one time, and I would have to live... Uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of years in order to get that done. But um, but who said we can't do it, you know? I mean, you know, maybe we could call in Vlad the Impaler <laughs> to bring you eternal life. <laughs> 
Well, we're going to need him to get, do that to a few of us because I can't do the show without you. So you're coming with. <laughs> yeah, fact checker Chris too. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. We'll see. <laughs> Tune in next week. We're going to be doing a lighter episode. We're covering the movie Jaws. Should be fun. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.